Chapter Two of The Beetle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Icy Jumbo. The Beetle by Richard Marsh. Chapter Two Inside. I realized, and so to speak, mentally photographed all the little details of the house in front of which I was standing, with what almost amounted to a gleam of preternatural perception. An instant before, the world swam before my eyes. I saw nothing. Now I saw everything, with a clearness which, as it were, was shocking. Above all, I saw the open window. I stared at it, conscious, as I did so, of a curious catching of the breath. It was so near to me, so very near, I had but to stretch out my hand to thrust it through the aperture. Once inside my hand would at least be dry. How it rained out there! My scanty clothing was soaked, I was wet to the skin, I was shivering, and, each second, it seemed to rain still faster. My teeth were chattering. The damp was liquefying the very marrow in my bones. And, inside that open window, it was, it must be, so warm, so dry. There was not a soul in sight, not a human being anywhere near. I listened. There was not a sound. I alone was at the mercy of the sodden night. Of all God's creatures the only one unsheltered from the fountains of heaven which he had opened. There was not one to see what I might do, not one to care. I need fear no spy. Perhaps the house was empty. Nay, probably. It was my plain duty to knock at the door, rouse the inmates, and call attention to their oversight, the open window. The least they could do would be to reward me for my pains. But suppose the place was empty, what would be the use of knocking? It would be to make a useless clatter, possibly to disturb the neighbourhood for nothing. And, even if people were at home, I might go unrewarded. I had learned, in a hard school, the world's ingratitude. To have caused the window to be closed, the inviting window, the tempting window, the convenient window, and then to be no better for it after all, but still to be penniless, hopeless, hungry, out in the cold and the rain, better anything than that. In such a situation, too late, I should say to myself, that mine had been the conduct of a fool. And I should say it justly, too, to be sure. Leaning over the low wall, I found that I could very easily put my hand inside the room. How warm it was in there! I could feel the difference of temperature in my fingertips. Very quietly I stepped right over the wall. There was just room to stand in comfort between the window and the wall. The ground felt to the foot as it were cemented. Stooping down, I peered through the opening. I could see nothing. It was black as pitch inside. The blind was drawn right up. It seemed incredible that anyone could be at home, and have gone to bed leaving the blind up and the window open. I placed my ear to the crevice. How still it was! Beyond doubt the place was empty. 
I decided to push the window up another inch or two, so as to enable me to reconnoitre. If anyone caught me in the act, then there would be an opportunity to describe the circumstances, and to explain how I was just on the point of giving the alarm. Only I must go carefully. In such damp weather it was probable that the sash would creak. Not a bit of it. It moved as readily and as noiselessly as if it had been oiled. This silence of the sash so emboldened me that I raised it more than I intended. In fact, as far as it would go. Not by a sound did it betray me. Bending over the sill, I put my head and half my body into the room. But I was no forwarder. I could see nothing. Not a thing. For all I could tell, the room might be unfurnished. Indeed, the likelihood of such an explanation began to occur to me. I might have chanced upon an empty house. In the darkness there was nothing to suggest the contrary. What was I to do? Well, if the house was empty, in such a plight as mine I might be said to have a moral, if not a legal right, to its bare shelter. Who with a heart in his bosom would deny it me? Hardly the most punctilious landlord. Raising myself by means of the sill, I slipped my legs into the room. The moment I did so, I became conscious that, at any rate, the room was not entirely unfurnished. The floor was carpeted. I have had my feet on some good carpets in my time, I know what carpets are, but never did I stand upon a softer one than that. It reminded me somehow, even then, of the turf in Richmond Park. It caressed my instep and sprang beneath my tread. To my poor travel-worn feet it was luxury after the pugly, uneven road. Should I, now that I had ascertained that the room was at least partially furnished, beat a retreat? Or should I push my researches further? It would have been rapture to have thrown off my clothes, and to have sunk down on the carpet then and there to sleep. But I was so hungry, so famine-goaded, what would I not have given to have lighted on something good to eat? I moved a step or two forward, gingerly, reaching out with my hands lest I struck, unawares against some unseen thing. When I had taken three or four such steps, without encountering an obstacle, or indeed anything at all, I began all at once to wish I had not seen the house, that I had passed it by, that I had not come through the window, that I was safely out of it again. I became, on a sudden, aware that something was with me in the room. There was nothing ostensible to lead me to such a conviction. It may be that my faculties were unnaturally keen, but all at once I knew that there was something there. What was more, I had a horrible persuasion that, though unseeing, I was seen, that my every movement was being watched. What it was that was with me I could not tell. I could not even guess. It was as though something in my mental organisation had been stricken by a sudden paralysis. It may seem childish to use such language, but I was overwrought, played out, physically speaking, at my last counter, and, in an instant, without the slightest warning, I was conscious of a very curious sensation, the like of which I had never felt before, and the like of which I pray I may never feel again a sensation of panic fear. 
I remained rooted to the spot on which I stood, not daring to move, fearing to draw my breath. I felt that the presence with me in the room was something strange, something evil. I do not know how long I stood there, spellbound, but certainly for some considerable space of time. By degrees, as nothing moved, nothing was seen, nothing was heard, and nothing happened, I made an effort to better play the man. I knew that, at the moment, I played the cur, and endeavoured to ask myself of what it was I was afraid. I was shivering at my own imaginings. What could be in the room to have suffered me to open the window and to enter unopposed? Whatever it was, was surely to the full as great a coward as I was, or why permit unchecked my burglarious entry? Since I had been allowed to enter, the probability was that I should be at liberty to retreat, and I was sensible of a much keener desire to retreat than I had ever had to enter. I had to put the greatest amount of pressure upon myself before I could summon up sufficient courage to enable me even to turn my head upon my shoulders, and the moment I did so I turned it back again. What constrained me? To save my soul I could not have said, but it was constrained. My heart was palpitating in my bosom. I could hear it beat. I was trembling so that I could scarcely stand. I was overwhelmed by a fresh flood of terror. I stared in front of me with eyes in which, had it been light, would have been seen the frenzy of unreasoning fear. My ears were strained so that I listened with an acuteness of tension which was painful. Something moved, slightly, with so slight a sound, that it would have scarcely been audible to other ears save mine. But I heard. I was looking in the direction from which the movement came, and, as I looked, I saw in front of me two specks of light. They had not been there a moment before, that I would swear. They were there now. They were eyes, I told myself, they were eyes. I had heard how cat's eyes gleam in the dark, though I had never seen them, and I said to myself that these were cat's eyes, that the thing in front of me was nothing but a cat. But I knew I lied. I knew that these were eyes, and I knew they were not cat's eyes, but what eyes they were I did not know nor dared to think. They moved towards me. The creature to which the eyes belonged was coming closer. So intense was my desire to fly that I would much rather have died than stood there still. Yet I could not control a limb. My limbs were as if they were not mine. The eyes came on, noiselessly. At first they were between two and three feet from the ground. But on a sudden there was a squelching sound, as if some yielding body had been squashed upon the floor. The eyes vanished, to reappear a moment afterwards at what I judged to be a distance of some six inches from the floor, and they again came on. So it seemed that the creature, whatever it was to which the eyes belonged, was after all but small. Why I did not obey the frantic longing which I had to free from it, I cannot tell. I only know I could not. I take it that the stress and privations which I had lately undergone, and which I was, even then, still undergoing, had much to do with my conduct at that moment, and with the part I played in all that followed. 
Ordinarily, I believe that I have as high a spirit as the average man, and as solid a resolution. But when one has been dragged through the valley of humiliation, and plunged again and again into the waters of bitterness and privation, a man can be constrained to a course of action of which, in his happier moments, he would have deemed himself incapable. I know this of my own knowledge. Slowly the eyes came on, with a strange slowness, and as they came they moved from side to side as if their owner walked unevenly. Nothing could have exceeded the horror with which I awaited their approach, except my incapacity to escape them. Not for an instant did my glance pass from them. I could not have shut my eyes for all the gold the world contains, so that as they came closer I had to look right down to what seemed to be almost the level of my feet. And at last they reached my feet. They never paused. On a sudden I felt something on my boot, and with a sense of shrinking, horror, nausea, rendering me momentarily more helpless, I realised that the creature was beginning to ascend my legs. To climb my body. Even then what it was I could not tell. It mounted me, apparently, with as much ease as if I had been horizontal instead of perpendicular. It was as though it were some gigantic spider, a spider of the nightmares, a monstrous conception of some dreadful vision. It pressed lightly against my clothing with what might, for all the world, have been spider's legs. There was an amazing host of them. I felt the pressure of each separate one. They embraced me softly, stickily, as if the creature glued and unglued them each time it moved. Higher and higher. It had gained my loins. It was moving towards the pit of my stomach. The helplessness with which I suffered its invasion was not the least part of my agony. It was that helplessness which we know in dreadful dreams. I understood, quite well, that if I did but give myself a hearty shake, the creature would fall off. But I had not a muscle at my command. As the creature mounted, its eyes began to play the part of two small lamps. They positively emitted rays of light. By their rays I began to perceive faint outlines of its body. It seemed larger than I had supposed. Either the body itself was slightly phosphorescent, or it was of a peculiar yellow hue. It gleamed in the darkness. What it was there was still nothing to positively show, but the impression grew upon me that it was some member of the spider family, some monstrous member, of the like of which I had never heard or read. It was heavy, so heavy indeed, that I wondered how, with so slight a pressure, it managed to retain its hold. That it did so by the aid of some adhesive substance at the end of its legs I was sure, I could feel it stick. Its weight increased as it ascended, and it smelt. I had been for some time aware that it omitted an unpleasant, fetid odour. As it neared my face it became so intense as to be unbearable. It was at my chest. I became more and more conscious of an uncomfortable wobbling motion, as if each time it breathed its body heaved. Its forelegs touched the bare skin about the base of my neck. They stuck to it. Shall I ever forget the feeling? 
I have it often in my dreams. While it hung on with those in front, it seemed to draw its other legs up after it. It crawled up my neck with hideous slowness, a quarter of an inch at a time, its weight compelling me to brace the muscles of my back. It reached my chin. It touched my lips, and I stood still and bore it all, while it enveloped my face with its huge, slimy, evil-smelling body, and embraced me with its myriad legs. The horror of it made me mad. I shook myself like one stricken by the shaking ague. I shook the creature off. It squashed upon the floor. Shrieking like some lost spirit, turning, I dashed towards the window. As I went, my foot catching in some obstacle, I fell headlong to the floor. Picking myself up as quickly as I could, I resumed my flight. Rain or no rain, oh, to get out of that room! I already had my hand upon the sill. In another instant I should have been over it. Then, despite my hunger, my fatigues, let anyone have stopped me if they could. When someone behind me struck a light. End of chapter 2